Well, hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us at Sobertown today. This is King 13, and I'm going to be interviewing a very, very special guest today who is an award-winning author. But firstly, I just want to tell you a little bit about Sobertown. It really is your one-stop shop for everything to do with sobriety. We've got Todd's Sober Toolbox there, and it's a complete information resource and will give you and educate things about your brain and your body and how alcohol has actually affected your brain and your body with what you have done to it. Um, also, a shout out to the <clears throat> excuse me, IAS community, who I'm a member of. Um, the IAS community is I Am Sober. It's a, a global daily uh, counter app with lots of global people talking and supporting each other and sharing. And it really is that it's a community where you can go make friends, get the support and get um, some tips and helps. And just don't make you feel alone on this journey like I did. I just want to put a bit of a disclaimer in before we get started that I'm not a doctor or a mental professional by any means, but I am a sober experienced media person trying to help those out there feeling alone or just needing help to stay sober. So as I was saying, today I have the pleasure of being joined by an award-winning author of a book called The Addicted Child. His name is Richard Capriola. Hi there, Richard. How are you today? Uh, hi, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me to share some time with you and your listeners. Well, I thank you for being here. Um, now, we're here to discuss the book, but first I want you just to tell the listeners just a little bit about your background before you became the author. Uh, sure. I uh, actually uh, had a long career in education uh, as an education administrator for the state of Illinois. Um, worked in that field for uh, almost three decades, a little over three decades. And as I transitioned out of that career, uh, I began working at a mental health crisis center, a regional crisis center. And I noticed a number of people that were coming to the crisis center from the emergency rooms had not only a mental health issue that they were struggling with, but also a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the University of Illinois and obtained a master's degree in addictions counseling. I continued to work uh, at the crisis center for a while until I was offered a position at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Menninger Clinic is a large uh, psychiatric hospital that serves both adolescents and adults from around the world. Um, I was hired as an addictions counselor for both adolescents and adults. I worked there for over a decade, uh, treating both uh, adolescents and adults. And so many times I would sit across from a family and I would go through the history of their child's use of a substance, what drugs they had been using, how long they had been using, how often. And I would give them the diagnosis of a substance use disorder. And, and they would look across at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say, I sort of knew something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. And these were good parents. These were good parents doing the best that they could. They, they, they missed the warning signs because nobody told them what to look for. Um, so after I retired from Menninger, I wanted to put together a short resource uh, uh, because I know parents don't have time to read volumes of information. So I wanted to keep it to around 100 pages, but I wanted to pack a lot of basic information that I, I would hope that parents will find helpful education type of material that would give them the basics, things like uh, how do drugs work in the adolescent brain? Uh, what, are, what street drugs are out there? They know about 
about alcohol and marijuana, but they may not know about some of these other drugs that kids have access to that are out on the street. Um, so I wanted to give them a little bit of knowledge about those. I wanted them to know what assessments are important for a comprehensive diagnosis. I wanted them to know uh, what treatment options are available for their child should they need treatment. And I wanted them to know about these process disorders, which are things like behavioral uh, compulsions, things like self-injury, computers, and cell phones, because many times these types of behaviors will accompany a child using alcohol and drugs. So I wanted to put this together to be a resource for families, um, to empower them with the information that would help them feel more aware and more confident about this issue if they are confronted with it. Not to become paranoid about it, but just to feel more confident about it. Yeah, and um, look, it is that you said your goal was to equip people and parents to help the child and and help them navigate through this because they don't know. Yeah. We don't. I was reading some of the you know with the book some of the terminology for these drugs, and I'd never. I'm 58, and I'd never even heard them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Not that I probably would have, but some I was familiar with, but some I just shook my head and said, there's got to be parents out there who have no idea. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and, you know, we're familiar with alcohol and marijuana. Parents know right. about those drugs. Yes. They're fairly yes. common. They're the, and they are the two most widely used substance among adolescents, alcohol and marijuana. But, you know, kids have access to these other drugs, too, that are out there. So, you know, I just wanted parents to at least have some understanding of, 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 of the full scope of what's out there that kids have access to. Yeah, and like you said, too, you know, the effects on the family can be catastrophic. Um, you know, once the parent realises it affects the whole family, it's not just an individual's problem. Um, and I know that your research, you said here that you relied on the University of Michigan that you borrowed the information from. And the study was with 8th, 10th and 12th graders. And that was they monitored their use of the alcohol or drugs and their opinions on these substances. Yes. So tell us a little bit more about that. This is an annual study that has been going on for a long period of time by the University of, of Michigan. Um, each year they survey those three grades, students in those three grades, to get a handle on what drugs kids are using, how often they're using those drugs, and, their, and, 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 and the opinion of kids about these drugs. For example, they also look at how available these drugs are. Uh, and, and one of the results was that when they asked the high school seniors how easy is it for you to get marijuana? 79% of high school seniors said it was very easy for them to find marijuana if they wanted it. 30% of high school students said it was very easy for them to get LSD. So the survey looks at not only, you know, what drugs kids are taking, but how available are these drugs? And, and another thing they look at is kids' perception of harmfulness. And what we find from that is kids don't think these drugs are very harmful. When, when, when that survey asked high school seniors, how harmful do you think it is to smoke marijuana regularly? Only 30% of high school seniors said that's harmful. So it looks at a number of different factors. It, it, it looks at all the drugs and, and what percentage of kids are taking them, how they view the availability of drugs, and how they view the harmfulness of drugs. That survey is done every year. The results usually come out shortly after the new year. 
Yeah, and you were saying here that the boys have a higher rate of illicit drug use than girls. So they were higher in the marijuana, the prescription narcotic drugs. That was for the 12th grade boys. But the girls were using amphetamines and tranquilizers more than boys in the lower grades, 8th to 10th grade practically. So how do you, how does that even, what do you sort of come to the conclusion with that, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, when we look at boys and girls, we do notice some differences. Uh, right. boy, boys tend to abuse multiple substances, whereas girls are more likely to abuse one substance. Uh, the, the other thing is boys are more likely to uh, abuse over-the-counter and prescription drugs uh, than girls. Um, boys tend to suffer, um, you know, from uh, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression. Um, so there, there are some slight differences in, 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 in the boys and the girls. Uh, but the bottom line is, whether you have a son or a daughter, they're at risk of, of, of using substances. It, it really doesn't matter, you know, where you live, urban, suburban, rural. It doesn't matter what your level of income it doesn't matter, you know, uh, where you send your child to school. Every child is vulnerable to being caught up in, in, in alcohol or drugs or, or, or some type of behavior like that. There is no pro absolutely protected child. Every child is vulnerable. There's protective environments, but every child is vulnerable. Parents shouldn't get paranoid about that. Uh, they should just be aware that there is that risk that's out there learn the information and, and be informed and be better prepared to deal with it if you have to. Yeah, that's exactly what I agree. I don't think it sort of uh, cares who it grabs. It's just, you know, if you use too much of anything, you're going to become reliant on it. That's yes. certainly the truth. Yeah. Yes. Now, getting back into um, the brain on drugs, the addiction, as you said, it's not a diagnosis. It's a substance use disorder. And I love that you say this because that's exactly how I think, because we're primarily alcohol-related um, with the IAS community and Sober Town. But it, I guess you said, you know, substance use disorder is really what it is, isn't it? And um, so let's go on a little bit about, uh, a bit about the brains and the dopamine and what happens there. Well, that's a, that's a very good point that you bring up because uh, we changed how we diagnose individuals. We used to call it abuse and dependency. You know, you were either abusing it or you were dependent on it based upon the severity of it and, and how it was disrupting a person's life. But not too long ago, we changed the classification from uh, away from abuse and dependency to what we now refer as to a, as being a substance use disorder. And I think that's a good move because it recognizes that it is a disorder like any other medical condition. It is a substance use disorder and it can range on a continuum of mild, moderate, or severe. So when we give somebody a diagnosis, it might be uh, alcohol uh, abuse disorder, moderate, or alcohol or marijuana use disorder severe. And, and how we determine moderate 
mild, moderate, or severe is based upon the number of negative consequences that the substance is having in a person's life. In other words, how disruptive has this, has this um, substance become in the person's life? The more disruptive, the more negative consequences, the more the person moves along the continuum up to the severe category. Uh, so that's an important distinction because I think it helps uh, at least move us a little bit further away from the stigma of, of mental health and addiction. Uh, there, there still is a terrible stigma associated mm -hmm. with addiction. There is with mental health too, but I think it's much more with, with addiction. So hopefully this change in terminology to substance use disorder will, will, will begin to move us away from looking at, uh, as, at addiction and, and substance use disorders as, as, as being such a negative uh, stigma attached to it. Yeah, it gets back to that same word, disease. And these are medical terms that have, we have been taught to use. Because if I had a disease, then you were going to treat me and that treatment was going to be something I'd have to do until I was cured. And I don't think that's the path that this takes at all. For me, this is a forever growth development path that I need to self-empower and get stronger with my pathways in my brain so that I don't have the cravings, so I don't hear the addict voice. And therefore, you know, I just continue to work on it. I realise that that's something I have to do. But, you know, there's so many theories out there, whether you're an AA person or whether you do smart recovery or no matter what you do. I don't want to be told that I can basically, I'm powerless to it. And, I, I you know, I think powerless for me was admitting that I had a problem. Yeah. And it can be, the interpretation again, can be whatever it is to the individual. You know what I mean? Yes. Sorry, you want to add something there? No, I think you said it very well. I, I think that's correct. I think, first of all, we take responsibility for, for our behaviors and for our actions. Uh, we continue to work on the issue. It's not, you know, we go through treatment or we go to some meetings and, and, and everything is, is resolved. It, it really is an issue where you have to manage this, this disorder on a daily basis. It does become easier with time, uh, but, but it is, uh, it is, it does require, it does require intervention. It, it many times requires treatment and it requires a continued effort to, 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 to maintain the work that's been accomplished. Yeah, I have another friend who has a, a, a sober channel on YouTube and he talks about the four P's, which I wish I've had, I had have known about before, but now I'm sort of in the midst of them. The first one is preparation. The next one's practice. The next one's patience and the fourth one's persistence. Yes. Well, I had no preparation at all. I just decided that I'd had enough. That was it. I was going to stop and I went cold turkey. Yeah. Probably maybe a silly move if, you know, my doctor would have probably said to me. But fortunately for me, I didn't have those severe seizures or any of those sort of things. But that was really, really difficult to do. And it, it got back to the situation, Richard, that I could not find help. I actually turned up to a rehab centre, saw how it operated. They were asking me for my credit card in bought shorts and a T-shirt, and I left because there was people I felt that needed it so much more than I did. So for me, the environment, I didn't feel safe or it was going to do anything for me. And as we both know, it can be a very, very expensive um, thing to do if you don't have the resources. And I had insurance. But I felt that there was just other people that needed it more. 
So maybe it was God's way or whatever of saying it wasn't my day to do that particular recovery and hence I'm here now and this so far has been successful for me, working it every day and you do have to work it, listeners, we've talked about that before. And, you know, talking about the dopamine and the the pleasure and pain centres sort of in your brain and those neuropathways and I look at it like I know that there are certain pathways that I'm not going to get back. I've destroyed them. I get that. But I'm also trying to build the new ones. And what do they say? It's got to do with the oh the the preoptic the synoptic the synoptic neurons in your brain. Mm-hmm. That basically this is what it's all about. It all gets very technical, and I'm by no means a brain scientist. But what I do know is that now I have tools that I have learned to deal with the cravings or the voice that I never even knew And when I began this journey. I thought that if I put down the bottle, that was the end of the story. I was going to be cured in two weeks. And, boy, was I, was I so, so wrong. And I'm happy that I, that I am wrong because I have learned so much more about the understanding of what I did to self, myself for 40 years that I didn't know. Um, and that's what you said back before. These children are growing up with lack of education, and that's what it is, to understand that they are at risk, not only with an alcohol kills, you know, so many million people a year, and even you were talking about the youths that die from substance abuse. And the numbers, this this guy doesn't care. The substance addict voice does not care who it takes. Um, it's very, very sad. So I really think we need to be educating these kids that there is a risk, and it's something that I'd love to do to be able to get out in schools and say, you know, guys, think before you choose because in the long run, I got lucky. Maybe you won't be so lucky because we all know of people who haven't been, unfortunately. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add just about that before I move on. Well, I I just want to emphasize that um, the adolescent brain is a brain uh, that is in the process of maturing and developing. Uh, Our brains don't get fully developed until around age 24 or 25. So it's very important for parents and family members to understand that their child's brain is very vulnerable. It's in the process of growing and developing and needs to be protected. And, 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 and alcohol and drugs uh, can, can change that brain as it's developed. Um, you know, I worked with uh, a lot of young men and women uh, at Menninger Clinic who were smoking marijuana multiple times a day. These were teenagers. They were all very bright. Uh, many of them, uh, their IQs were above average to superior. So these were bright young men and women. But they were smoking marijuana multiple times a day. Uh, when the psychological test came back on those kids, I noticed that the processing speed of their brain was below average, their short-term memory was impaired, and their motivation was very low. So that's an example of how these substances can work within the brain, the developing brain of an adolescent to produce some changes that might not look obvious, but, but are uncovered through some, some psychological or neuropsychological testing. So it's, it's very important that parents and family members understand that their adolescent child's brain is very vulnerable. It's, it's developing and it needs to be protected. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Um, going on to, to about this new assess, assessment, which is called the Genesept essay. Yes. I read about that. Tell us about that because this is interesting about examining the eight genes. 
Yeah, this is a relatively new test that's come about in 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 the last few years or so, um, and and it's enabled psychiatrists and physicians to narrow down the the certain drugs that are more likely to work. Uh, for an individual by looking at how their genetic makeup is structured so that when they're prescribing, say, an antidepressant drug, uh, it's not purely a hit or miss where they'll try one antidepressant, see if it works for a few weeks. Uh, if it doesn't work, they increase the dose, they wait longer period of time. If it's still not working, they might switch to another antidepressant. This looks at certain genes within our body and can tell a physician what what prescribed drugs are more likely to work than others. So basically it increases the probability that a physician will be able to prescribe a drug that's going to be effective, um, you know, uh, quicker basically and, and get away from the hit or miss type of thing. It's still a hit or miss type of thing, but the probability of selecting the right drug using this, type of genetic testing is much higher than what it used to be. So with sort of adolescents these days, are we finding that there is more anxiety and depression going on? Almost all of the kids that, that, that I worked with, uh, of course, they were, you know, that were coming into the hospital um, had not only a substance use disorder, but they had an underlying psychological disorder. Yeah. It might it might have been anxiety. It might have been depression. It might have been an emerging personality disorder, a conduct mm -hmm. disorder. Um, it might have been a, a child who was developing an eating disorder or might be self harming themselves because sometimes a child will be developing an eating disorder or they'll be self-injuring themselves in addition to using a substance. And, and what's important is to either rule in or rule out whether or not a child has these underlying psychological issues in addition to the substance use. Because many times, not always, but many times a child will be using a substance to medicate an underlying psychological issue. And if that's the case, you need to treat both the substance abuse and the underlying psychological issue like anxiety or depression. You need to treat both. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that, well, I can't give you percentages, but I think a high percentage of us used to self-medicate. And those, you know, growing up, and I do believe in, in with childhood, any sort of trauma that you've dealt with or haven't, more importantly, haven't dealt with in your life, and you've down, it doesn't go away. And even, you know, at my age, it's sat there for a very, very long time before I dealt with it. And so as a result, I mean, the thing is, are we finding that it is all sort of child trauma and things like that? Or are we finding that there are other reasons, just life in general, like just the pressures of life today? I mean, with social media and all these things, our brain is overstimulated, I think, beyond belief. You yeah. know, children cannot cut off the phones. They can't cut off the iPads. They can't get away from the computers. You know, they're playing all the, the, the PlayStation games. I mean, what are you guys finding? Is this is it all just contributing to one big overload? Well, <laughs> so I, think, I think there are a lot of different 
ways in which a child gets captured by alcohol or substances. Uh, some of it is uh, by associating with other kids who are using. Some of it is a form of peer pressure. Um, some of it is just experimenting to see if something is going to feel good. Um, and, and then for other kids, it, it is a way to medicate an underlying psychological issue like depression, anxiety, some type of trauma that maybe the parent are bullying that maybe the parents weren't even aware of. Um, and, and kids are are, are, are are like adults. When we have what I call an intolerable thought or feeling or memory, we don't sit with that. We want to get that resolved. And, and for many people, it gets resolved through a substance. Maybe it's alcohol or marijuana. But when we have this intolerable thought or a feeling or memory, uh, we want relief from it. And oftentimes the relief is found in a substance like alcohol or marijuana. And once a kid gets hooked into finding that relief, uh, they're, they're very likely to continue using that substance. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting there. And moving on here, I'm just looking at, we're talking about the different drugs here in Chapter 4, and marijuana seems to be very, very, very high. It says the high higher users are in the 10th to 12th grade than so much more than 10 years ago. A third of the seniors are smoking and vaping because that vaping's become, I think, a big issue. You see it all the time on the news and the telly and, I mean, yeah, what do you think about all this, these numbers here that you've put in chapter that four? Is, that is one of the most alarming findings out of the most recent survey was the, the, the dramatic increase in vaping among adolescents. Three, three years ago, the number, the percentage of high school seniors that were vaping nicotine was around 18%. Today, it's 34%. The percentage of high school seniors that were vaping marijuana three years ago was 9%. Today, it's 22%. So in the past three years, there has been a dramatic increase in the percentage of, of, of students who have turned to vaping nicotine and marijuana. It has become a major issue. Uh, and, and, and the percentages of kids who are vaping has dramatically increased. Parents many times might be unaware of this. Uh, the, the, the vaping instruments, sometimes they look like pins, sometimes mm. they look like USB drives. They're very, they're very easy for kids to, to hide and to use. But, uh, but this vaping uh, is becoming a really serious issue among the adolescent population. Are you finding the other drugs are increasing as well? No, actually, uh, marijuana and, and alcohol uh, have been the two drugs of choice for years uh, and, and have remained relatively stable among the adolescent population. Uh, tobacco smoking, cigarette smoking is at an all time low. But I think what's going what's happening is kids are moving away from smoking cigarettes and cigars to vaping nicotine. That's how they're getting their nicotine now, which means they're getting higher concentrations of nicotine. But drugs like alcohol and marijuana, fortunately, they've remained relatively stable for the last 10 years or so. And that's exactly what I was just thinking, that the concentration is higher 
So yeah. in the long run, it's going to be doing more damage quicker. It is. It, 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 has a, it has a tendency to, um, you know, to, to to hit the brain with a lot higher concentrations of nicotine, which makes it much more uh, addictive quicker for these kids. Now, this is our one, alcohol. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I read here that 50% of 12th graders don't associate risk with drinking. Now, is that just an undereducation problem? I, I think um, I, I think all of the adolescent uh, drug use is an undereducation yeah. uh, yeah. problem. You know, we, uh, we we still continue to go along the lines in many cases of trying to tell kids that it's illegal, uh, it's not good for them, they shouldn't do it. Just say no. Uh, all these bad things might happen. And and in my experience working with kids, they don't pay any attention to that stuff. Uh, what does work with them, what does capture their attention is the neuroscience behind it. These kids are usually very interested in learning about their brain, how their brain works, what areas of the brain control different things that they do. And, 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 and I use that approach with them. I, I would educate them about the brain. And then I would introduce how substances affect that brain. So I would begin by educating them about the brain. And then I would introduce how drugs can change their brain. They seem to be really interested in that. Well, so am I. Can you expand just briefly on what happens in the brain? Yeah. Well, what do you what tell them? Well, you know, I would show them a picture of a brain, for example, and I would point yeah. out the different areas of the brain and what they're responsible for. This area of the brain is responsible for speech. This areas of the brain is responsible for coordination, helps you walk, helps you move. This area of the brain is responsible for helping you uh, with higher order thinking, abstract reasoning, the ability to make good decisions, weigh pros and cons. And then I would show them another picture of the brain, but it would show where marijuana attached itself to all those areas of the brain. And they would see that marijuana was spread all the way throughout their brain. And when they saw that picture, the light bulb came on and they could sort of see, okay, well, now I understand why my memory is not as good as I want it to be. Now I understand why my, my motivation isn't what I want it to be. But they had to see that. They had to see it for themselves. Um, so that neuroscience approach seems to be what really captures their attention and, 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 and might be the way to motivate them to move away from drugs. Um, but, but our brains are very, are very vulnerable. They're in the process of growing. And these drugs, whether you're an adolescent or adult, drugs have one thing in common. They, they cause a surge of dopamine in the brain. Dopamine is a chemical in the brain. It's a neurotransmitter, right. yeah. but it's, but it causes pleasure. So the more dopamine we have, the higher pleasure we feel. And what all drugs have in common is they cause a huge surge of dopamine in the brain. That's the pleasurable feeling we get when we take a drug. Um, and, and, and that can do damage to the brain. The, the other point that I think is important is that our brains have a remarkable capacity to heal themselves. Once we stop using alcohol or drugs, our brains have a remarkable capacity to heal themselves. And we can actually see it through imaging of, of how the brain will improve. It will actually get much better 
once the person moves away from using a substance. That's what I'm interested in. How long is it going to take my brain to get better? <laughs> we, um, we talk about um, pause, you know, post withdrawal. withdrawal. Yeah. yeah. Correct. And so when I started out, I had to somewhat extend my expectations of how long it was going to take for my brain to get better because I realized very quickly it wasn't going to be an instant, an instant solve. And so I, I changed my, uh, my expectations. And I truly believe now I've given myself two years because I did drink constantly for many, many years. And so I built up a tolerance to the point where I wasn't having pleasure in anything. I think it's called ana anademia. Anadonia. Anadonia, I beg my pardon, yeah. So, yes, and that was the state that I had got to. And I knew that this wasn't right. I shouldn't be feeling like this. And with that, the anxiety and the depression, as you've heard many a time, increases. But what's the crazy thing about alcohol, and we've discussed this at length, is that we're led to believe, oh, it's going to make you feel better. It's going to give you some relief. It's going to do, you know, make you more sociable. It's going to make you funnier. In hindsight, the marketing and everything out there has tricked us into believing that when actually it's done the complete opposite and enhanced all the negative effects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the, the, the perception of alcohol, which is through the media, you know, is that it, it, it's always going to give you a good time. You're always going to be happy. You're always going to be social. Um, and for some people, that may very well be true. Uh, but but it also can be a, a door that is opened to uh, abuse and ultimately to dependency that can have very serious consequences on a person and their family. Yeah. And Richard, I'm trying to look back and think, when did this happen? When did I go from being what I thought was just a good time party girl? And, you know, in my mind, I thought I could take it or leave it. And maybe I couldn't back then to when it actually, I realized it had a grip on me and I had an issue, but I still didn't want to face up to it because that takes the accountability and the responsibility side can take quite some time. It did yeah. with me. Yeah. I just kept going. I didn't want to deal with me because I was in such a bad place. And that was the only thing at that time that was going to give me some reprieve. Again, yeah. lying to myself and all the things that go along with it. Um, and the more I think about it, it seems to be getting earlier and earlier and earlier. And I don't think that there has been a proven point on when exactly that's going to happen. It's just like we get to some sort of tipping point and then it's got you and there's no turning back. How would you describe that process? I think it's 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 different for for every individual. Um, you know, some of it is also a genetic vulnerability. You know, addiction is a disease. And like any other disease, there's a genetic component to it. So um, if you have addiction in your family, you are more uh, susceptible to abusing substances and becoming addicted to substances. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to happen. It just means that you're at higher risk. Um, so um, when, when we look at a person's likelihood of becoming addicted to a substance, we have the genetic component, but it takes more than just genetics. It takes environmental factors in addition to the genetics. So you might have a genetic predisposition 
to addiction because of your family history. But it's going to take more than that to, 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 to get you addicted. It's going mm. to take the environmental factors, high levels of stress, high levels of abuse, all of the psychiatric disorders. Those all come together to push a person into uh, beginning to abuse a substance and then building on that until they become dependent on a substance. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of factors. I couldn't agree with you more there. And you did refer to it as a disease. Do you truly believe that's what it is? And I'm not going to get into the whole if it is, if it isn't. I know it's a medical term. Is that the term that is still being used today? Yes, we, we, have, we have come a long way uh, so that now most of the medical community is recognizing that uh, the substance use disorders are diseases. They are the same uh, type of disease that the medical profession has used for other disorders like cancer and hypertension and all of these other disorders. So we've made quite a bit of progress in recognizing that this term addiction is a disease. It is a disease concept. Um, that's the medical community having come a long way. I'm not sure society has come that far yet. I think m much of society still has a stigma associated with addiction um, and also mental health. There's an addiction with, uh, there's a stigma associated with mental health too. But I think that stigma is much more severe when it comes to addiction. Um, and, and, and why is that? Uh, why, why does society look at addicts different than they do people who have other medical diseases? Well, I think the answer to that is in the behaviors that society associates with addiction. You know, you don't, you don't find people with cancer, or hypertension, or glaucoma, glaucoma, or any other medical disease, you know, going out and, 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 and committing crimes or, 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 or doing things that society uh, objects to. But unfortunately, much of society views as addicts as people who engage in, uh, in behaviors that are illegal or destructive. And I think that's unfortunate because it contributes to the stigma of addiction. We need to look at addiction as being what it truly is. It's a disease, and, and people who have the disease of, of addiction deserve to have treatment just as much as somebody who has the disease of hypertension needs to have treatment. Yeah, look, um, okay, and thank you for your opinion on that. If it, This is just my brain thinking. If it's a disease that I believe at the moment there is no cure for, that's what I have been told, and so far no one has told me different, do you think that we ever will find a cure? Is it being worked on? Do you know of anything being within the industry? Like, Well, I think uh, when, when you look at the word cure, uh, you, you look for treatment. Uh, just like there's no cure for cancer, but there are right. tr treatments, and treatments are becoming more effective as research learns more about the disease. 
And I think that the, that will be true for addiction as well. As research gets more into, uh, into understanding this concept of the disease of addiction, treatment and medications will become more effective and better. Will we ever get rid of it completely? Uh, probably not, because drugs are always going to be out there. Alcohol is always going to be out there. And, and, and certain people are going to be captured by them. But hopefully, treatment will become more widely available. It will become more effective. And people will recover in, in more percentages uh, than, than what we have right now. I think the key is to have effective treatment and to have it widely available. So many people and I think you brought this up earlier, so many people uh, who need treatment can't get treatment because insurance limits them maybe to 28 days or doesn't cover anything. And, uh, or if they need residential type of treatment, you know, that can get into thousands of dollars a month and people can't afford it. So, you know, the most effective treatment in the world doesn't help you if you don't have access to it and you can't afford it. So we need to, we need to go a lot further in making these treatments um, effective for people who really, really need them. Could not agree more, could not agree more. And for listeners, with this particular handbook, what Richard has done, and I'm not going to list every single one of them, but he has chapters on particular drugs, like he said, the marijuana, the alcohol, narcotics, vaping, nicotine, it goes on on MDMA, dissociative drugs. Um, so he'll give you information about these so you do understand and you can read about it and he also, as I said, you talk about the treatment, the assessment and the treatments, which is a very important part of getting to the root of why the, the usage is happening, you know, in the first place. Um, I love how you talk about gaming and cell phones because this is bringing it into today. <laughs> so, like I said to you, are we just overwhelmed with all of these things that, are, I mean, you know yourself, I open my email or your text and you've just got, Streams and streams of it. And it's hard yeah. to catch up. It really is. And I get totally overwhelmed. And that puts a lot of pressure on you sort of you want to be there, you want to respond, but sometimes you just don't don't have the time to. And I put a post up in one of our smaller groups today saying just that that sometimes we have to step back and get the balance back into our lives. I mean, when I was in, in sales and, and in training. I used to say to people, you know, try and get eight hours sleep, eight hours play, eight hours work. That is so unrealistic these days <laughs> for a lot of families. I mean, that would be lovely, wouldn't it, if that was the case? Yeah. But the life has got out of balance, don't you? Do you think so? I think I think social media has has taken over everybody's life, uh, whether it's yeah. cell phone or or computers or you know gaming for kids. Um, it, it's it's just very difficult for for some families. I think struggle with this in terms of, of of having adolescents who are constantly tied to their phone or tied to some gaming system, um, and and then parents worry about what type of exposure is is their child getting to under social media you know uh, because it, it's very difficult to place appropriate limits on on their ability to to get onto the internet and to and to find sites and and, and during the pandemic uh, in the in the past year you know disrupted everybody's life 
uh, and, and, and kids were confined to home. They were pulled away from their schools. They were pulled away from their social engagements and their sports and whatever they enjoyed doing. And we did see a significant increase in, in things like video gaming and uh, in compulsive use of these electronic devices as kids were stuck at home. But there is no question that this type of compulsive behavior uh, falls within a category of what we call process disorders. We have chemical disorders, which are the alcohol and the drugs, and we have process disorders, which are things like self-injury, gaming, cell phone use. And, and what, we, what we find is that those behaviors increase dopamine in the brain in the same way that the chemical disorders like alcohol and drugs do. So the child and the adult gets pleasure out of, out of these activities, just like they do with drinking alcohol or taking a drug. But these can be very problematic behaviors for families. I, I've had some kids who, uh, who came into the hospital and one of the disorders they had was a gaming disorder. And they would spend hours and hours and hours, you know, playing video games uh, well into the morning. Uh, and that was causing quite a dilemma in their families. Yeah, and it's that repetitive, isn't it? That repetitive behavior thing that you're doing, that that's what the brain learns and then probably craves it because it's yeah. not getting its, its fix every day. That's right. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's scary stuff. I've got a couple of nephews like that. Luckily, my sister keeps a, a tight rein on them. They love playing Fortnite. And I'm thinking, oh, this overstimulation. And, and I do worry about that. I do worry about what's going to happen in the long term. And I know even the people that I've interviewed from IAS and they've told their stories, a lot of them have actually said, and I agree, that things or their intake of alcohol increased through COVID. We were at home. We were isolated just where the addict wants us to be. He wants us isolated, alone, and consuming vast amounts. So you're feeding the beast. I think there's and, been some research that's come out that shows that during the pandemic year, alcohol consumption among women had risen yes. significantly. Oh, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I've heard Either. that too. Yeah, And I think that, again, we're not going to see the repercussions of COVID as far as substance abuse disorder goes, maybe for some time. But there, I mean, I'm sure sales have gone rampantly up. And we've laughed about this in a non, in a, you know, because I, I like to have a laugh with sobriety because it's all so serious. But, you know, the fact that um, markets and shops were and alcohol places were essential businesses. I no. mean... Here you go. There's, there's the marketing working in such a genius, a genius manner, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, so you go on, and I want to talk a little bit more. Okay, we've assessed the child maybe has a problem or the adolescent has a problem. We get them into treatment. That's great. They come out of treatment and they do, you know, and you've got all different sorts of treatments here, which I really love, like the CBT, the Cognitive Behavioural Therapies. They come home. What what do we do then? Take it from there when they come out of these treatment centres because they're obviously then they try and reimmerse back into the family and back into society. What should the parents sort of be doing and, and the guidance they should be taking? Well, I think they're going to get uh, some guidance from the treatment facility that their child has has yeah. gone through treatment and, and come home from. There will be an aftercare program uh, that is developed for the child, or there should be, which will give the family some guidance as to what the next steps should be. Uh, certainly, 
I think a lot of parents are going to be very apprehensive about those first few months when a child returns home. So they're probably going to be overprotective, very cautious, very careful, and there's nothing wrong with that. As they see their child progress from treatment and they see that things are going well, then they will become hopefully a little bit more confident, uh, less watchful, less paranoid, and, 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 and things will continue to, to move. You know, the treatment is just one aspect of recovery, uh, as you know. Then there is the recovery process. Um, and the other thing I would say is that while we focus on the child, families need help too. Yeah. And it's very important that throughout this process of discovering your child is using a substance, getting assessments, going through treatment, that as a parent, you get the support and the help that you need for yourself and your family. Maybe it's a support group. Maybe it's a close friend. Maybe it's a professional counselor. But you will need support as you go through this as well, because as you know, uh, the, the disease of addiction is a family disease. It affects everyone in the family. So it's very important that parents get the support and have the help that they need to go through this process along with their child. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. Everybody needs to be in on this for it to be successful. Yes. Um, do you know what, do you know what the, the, the sort of numbers of, um, relapse are, or I like to call them slips, because relapse is something I've learned that you relapse is completely abandoning the program and going back to full use, and slips yeah. are basically just an unintentional use of that particular day. So, what do we know about those numbers, about the success numbers? Well, uh, what we know is like with any other disease, a relapse is possible. Yes, um, it, it happens. Uh, sometimes it's unintentional. Sometimes it's intentional. Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, it just captures a person out of nowhere. It sort of drops down on them. They didn't intend to relapse. They got involved in a situation. It became overwhelming and the brain sort of kicks in and they go to the relief that they know works. Um, but I think it's very important that a person and a family understand that a relapse, if it occurs, we, we hope it doesn't, but if it occurs, it is not a failure. It is not a failure of the person. It, it can be a learning experience. If you are able to look back on a relapse and examine what brought it about, how it happened, what were the triggers, uh, chances are you can turn that into a learning experience. And it's very important that, that families and, and, and individuals understand that a relapse is not a failure. It can be a learning experience. And if you turn a relapse into a learning experience, it is very likely that you will significantly reduce the likelihood of having another relapse. So my advice is don't look at yourself or another person as having been a failure because they have a relapse. Look at it as a learning experience. Learn as much as you can from that relapse and build it into your program so that the chances of having a relapse are significant, another relapse are significantly less. 
I love that. That's exactly what we say at IAS. If people slip, and we have had and have heard and we have people do their stories about that. And it's funny how when they get back, they almost said, that was great because now I know. Yeah. Now I know. And they come back stronger, yes. with more determination, more motivation to actually abstain. And that is a beautiful thing because yeah. they say it is very, very common, a lot more common than we think. So, again, it is a learning experience. And like my little, my little words of today is future growth development. That's what it is all about. As long as you get back to on track, as you said, learn from it and just keep going. It doesn't matter how many times it takes. Um, we've got a, a beautiful lady that basically reset 70 times in 70 days and she just kept going. That tenacity, that will, you will get there someday, yeah. sometime. I don't know what clicks in the brain or what it is, but you know, everyone's got a motivation, I believe, to get to get sober and stop, you know, firstly for yourself and then work out what it is that is important to you and what sort of life that you want to, you want to lead, you know? Um, So before we wrap up, I just want to ask you if you want to add anything else of significance or some tips or any advice about what we've chatted about today. Well, I would say that um, first of all, um, if there's any questions or any issues that uh, you as a listener wish that we would have discussed and, and we didn't get to, if, if you will simply send those in, uh, I will be more than willing to come back and address the specific questions or issues that anyone in the audience would, would like for me to address. The other thing is I would encourage everyone, as particularly if you are a parent, uh, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, uh, to, to learn as much as you can about adolescent substance abuse. Um, learn what is in my book. Uh, get a copy of my book. It's not going to cost you very much. Uh, it's, 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 it's priced very reasonably. It's available as a Kindle for people who like to read on a Kindle. There's also a paperback version. There's a parent workbook that's available. Uh, So, you know, get a copy of the book, use it as a resource, keep it on your shelf if you have the paperback. You may never need it, but you may may have a friend who, who might benefit from it down the road. So have it as a resource, learn the basics um, so that you feel more empowered, more confident about this subject. You can, you can go to the book's website, which is www.helptheaddictedchild.com, helptheaddictedchild.com. And there you can read uh, endorsements and book reviews. You can read a sample chapter. And there's a link that will take you directly to Amazon where you can buy the book or the workbook as a Kindle uh, or as a paperback for the uh, for the uh, main book. But it's a resource that's available for you and for your family and for your friends. So please take advantage of it. Uh, I think that knowledge is power. Uh, this is a subject that can be very frightening for many families. Um, and, and, and I just want them to have the information so that they feel more confident and better prepared to deal with this issue in the event that they have to. And I can vouch for it being the best investment that you will ever make because I got it on my Kindle from Amazon, I think, for 99 cents. It was not <laughs> special. So there you go. For a dollar, you can help the family get involved in any issues that there may be with your children. And it is a wonderful, wonderful tool to have in your back pocket. Yeah. We always say in our world of sobriety with the IS community, 
You all have a phone. I'm in your back pocket if you get into trouble. Call me out, call me, talk to me. And that way, the same with the book. It's a handbook that can be there yeah. at your fingertips and it does have a lot of a lot of useful information. Yeah. So I thank, well, thank you, you so much, Richard, for today. The well, book is you. The Addicted Child by Richard Capriola. And as I said, if you want to come back and add anything else, you are more than welcome. And I've truly enjoyed just talking to you today. And well, again, thank you. Well, thank you. And uh, I will probably reach out to you after this new research from the University of Michigan becomes available uh, after the first of the year. And we can sort of talk about what changes they've uncovered. Uh, that Kendall price of 99 cents uh, will be available at least through the end of the year. So uh, take advantage of it while it's still out there before it goes away. And, uh, you know, if you do have a Kendall, 99 cents is a good investment and and that'll that'll remain the price at least through uh through the rest of this year yeah it's a great investment do not miss out people i tell you you've never spent a better dollar in your life all right well for me i'm going to say thank you once again guys this is sobertownpodcast.com have a look at todd's sober toolbox and all the other resources there and i'm going to say goodbye until next time and bless you and have a great day thank you very much richard thank you